Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Harry Stee Harry. Yes, that's our next King Harry. King Henry II, grandson of Henry I and son of the Empress Matilda, who never came to the throne that should have been hers. And I think it's probably safe to say that after William the Conqueror, Henry is the next king that people will perhaps know something about, mainly because of what happened between him and his friend Thomas a Becket the famous murder in the cathedral, but also because Henry was the father of Richard the Lionheart and wicked King John. The Dick and John who follow Harry in our rhyme. Willy, Willy, Harry, Stee, Dick, John. And finally, I think some people would know him because he was married to one of the few women from this time who made her presence felt and left a strong mark on history. A fascinating and powerful woman, the extraordinary Eleanor of Aquitaine. But I think it's fair to say that beyond these headline facts, most people probably don't know a lot more about Henry. And, you know, I mean, it's been really interesting for me to dig a bit deeper into Henry's story. And in many ways, it's a depressing story because it's so similar to what's gone on before with all of the English kings since William the Conqueror. It's a story of, not only of constant infighting within the royal family, but also territorial disputes between Henry's Anglo-Norman kingdom, his mini-empire, and his neighbours. There's ongoing fighting against the Scots and the Welsh, and now, for the first time, the English make a proper push into Ireland, mainly because Henry wanted to secure some lands for his youngest son, John. So he thought he'd steal it all from the Irish. But probably most importantly, you've got this ongoing fighting in France between Normandy and the various states that surround it. Theoretically ruled over by the King of France, but all of them powerful in their own right and ruled by their own independent dukes. The king only really properly controls the area around Paris, the Domaine Royale. And around this area, you have Burgundy to the east, Flanders to the north, which is essentially the Low Countries. Uh, and to the northwest is Normandy, then beyond that, Brittany. Uh, and more to the centre is Maine. Below this is Anjou. Uh, and then the huge duchy of Aquitaine. And below that, Gascony and Toulouse. I mean, there are more, but we, we don't have time to go into them all here. 
but so we have this sort of patchwork of different counties or duchies, whatever you want to call them, and they're always rubbing up against each other, jostling for control, for dominance, which is mirrored within the Anglo-English royal family. Just like how William the Conqueror was at war with his own sons, who in turn were at war with each other. And then we see how Henry I is the winner of all this, but on his death, we have the ruinous civil war when the Lords refuse to accept Henry's daughter Matilda as Queen and her cousin Stephen takes the throne. And we saw in the previous episode how Matilda's son, Henry Plantagenet, eventually grew old enough to take over Matilda's fight and lead an army to confront Stephen. But the people have had enough. The knights have had enough. The lords have had enough. They wanted an end to the fighting. And so they all came to an agreement. Stephen would stay on the throne until he died, at which point Henry would inherit. And luckily for Henry, Stephen died within the year and Henry came to the throne as Henry II at the age of 21, which is quite extraordinary. When you think about it, that he'd come over, still in his teens, to, to lead an army and to try and win a country for himself, takes the throne at 21. You know, when I think of my youngest, he's a couple of years older than 21 now, but, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't trust him to, to run the country. He can't even get his laundry done. So Henry's on the throne, and, and it's interesting because when we look back at these kings, we all sort of picture them as being somewhere in the Middle Ages for their whole lives. But Henry started on the throne as a young man, he was, a, he was pretty successful as a monarch. He ruled England for 35 years, died when he was 56. And perhaps if he had died when he was a bit younger, his reign would have looked even more successful than it was. Because as we shall see, this depressingly familiar story starts all over again of him fighting with his own family. But that's to come. First of all, he takes the throne and he becomes one of the most powerful men in Europe at that point. So he's already married Eleanor of Aquitaine. So she comes with that huge block of land to the south of Normandy. And she also brings Gascony to the table because that is where she is from. So Henry has this land mass, this empire, which is known as the Angevin Empire, which stretches from Scotland all the way down to the Pyrenees. It takes in a huge chunk of France, the whole of the left-hand side. It's a bigger part of France and is directly ruled over by the French king. But Eleanor, when she marries Henry, he's 19, she's 30, which is a repeat of the pattern with what happened with Henry's mother, the Empress Matilda, who married Geoffrey of Anjou when she was 11 years older than him. So there was no taboo then about marrying an older woman, particularly if she came with a huge chunk of land. Eleanor had already been married to the French king, Louis VII. They had had two daughters together, but after 15 years of marriage, she married him when she was 15, she had produced no sons and she wanted out of the marriage. And she managed to get the marriage annulled on the grounds of consanguinity, which is where the two partners are too closely related. And there's a concern that this is against God and will bring in aberrations. Consanguinity is a sort of useful term if someone wants to try and get out of one of these royal marriages. And it went on a lot, but Eleanor was able to use this as a means to get out of her marriage to Louis. Because they'd had no sons, Louis didn't pit up a huge fight, but he was extremely pissed off when Eleanor then pretty much advertised herself because she had this amazing dowry to bring to the table of this, this huge chunk of France. And it seems that she, she sent a personal invitation to young Henry and said, look, you could do a lot worse than to marry me. And so he did, which... Louis, King Louis of France, was really not expecting. And this was kind of like the last thing he wanted, although it's stupid to think this might not have happened. Because suddenly, Henry is now ruling this great chunk of Western France. And 
his father had already put in motion the sort of the expansion of of Normandy, and through this period, Henry was able to expand into Brittany, so that they really did have that whole left hand chunk of France. They had an interesting marriage, Henry and Eleanor. The modern cliche would be to say it was a bit stormy. Uh, they were certainly greatly in love when it started. By the end, it was very different. But they were certainly close enough to have eight children, five sons and three daughters. So they obviously got on well together on one level, which meant that Eleanor had ten surviving children. So she was a pretty tough woman. Her last child she had at 44, and that was young Prince John, who went on to become King John. And she lived well into his reign, into her 80s. So she had a long and fascinating life. So to start with, the, they get on well. This is a great power couple. They've got uh, these huge holdings, which brings in huge wealth for them, which is really necessary because the first thing that Henry has to do is to sort out the problems in England. There's been 20 years of civil war. When Stephen came to the throne, he inherited a country in very good order. Henry I had done so much to shore up the finances and to put in place a good system of governance. Uh, and that all had to be rebuilt because the income to the royal estate was way, way down. But Henry was pretty effective. You could say that he was a good king on this level. Did start settling everything down. Uh, he made an effort to behave decently towards the English population. He brought in a more modern and a fairer uh, form of legal system, which did favour the ordinary people. So he did a huge amount on that front. But at the same time, there was still fighting. There was the ongoing problems with Scotland. He pushed much further into Wales and managed to subdue the Welsh people more effectively than his predecessors, built more castles there. And in France, although he had all these lands, there was constantly having to fight to preserve them. And particularly his reign was coloured by his relationships with the French king. First King Louis and later on his son Philip II. There was a constant pushing backwards and forwards, a sort of give and take between them for who was going to be the dominant figure in France. And some people have described this period as a sort of Cold War, as they didn't ever directly take arms against each other, but they would fight via one of these principalities. They would both send troops in or they would send support to the local leaders and so you know very much like in in the modern cold war america didn't directly fight china but effectively fought against china and chinese support and influence in vietnam but through all this somehow or other because if you if you look at the history there are so many battles there are so many sieges of these castles in in france and in battles in Wales or whatever, that, it, that it's a blur. It's very hard to keep up with and, and make sense of it. But somehow through all this, he was able to restore the rule of law and to at least make the country a more civilised place to live. But he came unstuck slightly when he tried to extend this rule of law into the churches and so we get to this dispute that he has with the church in England. And it's, it's almost identical to what happened earlier on with William II and with Henry I, in that you have these two powerful figures. You have the king and then you have the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the Archbishop of Canterbury is the head of the English church. And the church had always fought to remain separate from the laws of the land and the direct rule of the king. The church claimed that the head of the church in England was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And as I've said before, their head is the Pope, not the English king. And beyond the Pope, of course, it's God. But the English kings 
were constantly trying to undermine this system. They wanted to bring the church under their command, not least because there was a lot of money in the churches, the monasteries, the abbeys. And the kings always wanted to do whatever they liked. They didn't want to be told what to do and how to behave by the church. They didn't want to constantly have to be seeking the permission of the Pope to get married, to even to take the throne. The Pope theoretically had to bless that. So there's this constant three-way struggle, which I've talked about before, between the power of the king, the power of the aristocracy, the lords, the dukes, the barons, and the power of the church. And at any point, if any one of those three gets too powerful, it causes problems. And the king is constantly having to knock down castles that have been unofficially built by some duke or lord somewhere, trying to get more power for themselves. And what happened in Henry's reign is he tried to say to the church that they had to be governed by the same laws as everyone else in the country, so that if a member of the clergy committed a secular crime, he wasn't getting involved in any kind of religious malpractice, but if they committed any secular crime, they should be tried in the same regional courts as any other Englishman. Church said, no, we're not having this. We are not under your jurisdiction. Any crimes committed within the church will be dealt with by the church. And this is a problem that has persisted to the present day. When we look at all the scandals in the, in the Catholic Church, where priests' wrongdoings are, are dealt with internally. So, and obviously the most high-profile examples of this are abuse and paedophilia, where, you know, you might get some bishop who's done terrible things in Germany and the powers that be in the Catholic Church whisk him away and set him up somewhere in Africa, theoretically out of the way. But usually they are then in a position where they can actually behave even worse to the Africans. So there is this idea that the church is above the law. And Henry is, is bashing his head against the wall with this until he sees that he might have a solution. One of Henry's best friends is this man, Thomas Beckett. He comes from fairly humble origins. His father was a working man. And whilst the young Beckett was progressing and coming up in the world and studying, um, his father came down in the world and Beckett was forced to become a humble clerk to support himself and his family. But he made friends with Henry quite soon after Henry had come to the throne. He was quite a lot older than Henry, but the two of them became huge friends. And Beckett was a charismatic, ambitious man. And so Henry brought him up, as it were, elevated him, eventually installing him as his chancellor. And they were sort of famous men about town, competing with who could have the latest, most expensive fashionable clothing and there was a lot of roistering as you might want to call it drinking and feasting and hunting and, and having a, a great time together and he was a very worldly man Beckett maybe because he'd come from a, a poor background he he liked money he liked making money he liked spending money and he, he liked to be a figure he liked people to know who he was and to you know respect him and bow deeply when they saw him coming. He he loved all of that. So when the post of Archbishop of Canterbury became free, following the death of the previous Archbishop, Henry thought Becket would be the perfect person to install. It was his close friend. He was a man who'd been close to the court, at the heart of the court. Um, he knew what Henry wanted. He knew what Henry needed. And Henry thought, great, I'll put Beckett there, I'll have the church in my pocket, and between the two of us, we'll have everything sewed up. Beckett begged him not to do it. He said, don't, don't do this, this will, this will spoil our friendship. But Henry said, no, no, don't be, don't be ridiculous, this is perfect, and forced him into it. But as soon as Beckett takes up the post, something rather unexpected happens. He, he finds God. He suddenly becomes very pious and very holy, and goes over to the church's side against Henry. And Henry is furious about this. He thought he had it sewn up, but, but now Beckett has become, instead of his closest ally, he's become his, his greatest enemy. 
And Thomas Beckett was an interesting figure. He was only called Thomas O. Beckett centuries later. The O was added by religious types who thought it made him sound more grand and important and saintly. Uh, So he wasn't just plain Thomas Beckett from the back streets of London. And I think it comes down to our views on Christianity and how um, pious we are as a nation. But, you know, at times when Christianity has been a big thing and uh, everybody has got to be seen to be going to church, then Thomas Beckett is seen as this great figure, this this saint, because he was sanctified later on. But at other times, when people are a little bit more suspicious of and less respectful towards the church, when we may be questioning the church's power, its, its wealth and hypocrisy, Beckett is viewed quite differently. Rather bizarrely, a few years ago, BBC History magazine, I think it was, did a poll on the worst Englishman of all time. And there was one for each century. And the man who came out on top was Jack the Ripper. But second, rather unexpectedly, was Thomas a Beckett. And some people said it was because in the century, which was the 12th century, And actually, I just have to confess there that whenever people say things like 16th century or 12th century, I have to stop and do the maths. And you think, okay, that's, yeah, 12th century, that's the 1100s. And I think quite a lot of people do, and they don't always admit to it. But but here am I doing a history program where I have to always stop and do the maths. But yes, it was the 12th century. In the 12th century, I think he was probably the only name of any of the people that was put up to vote for or to vote against but whilst there is some some questions surrounding Thomas Beckett to say he was the second worst man in English history after Jack the Ripper is pretty ridiculous but it seems to me and this is my personal take on it that what happened when Thomas Beckett becomes Archbishop is that he is this he's a very arrogant man He's a vain man and he's a very ambitious man. He knows he's never going to become king of England. He knows he can only be second best as archbishop. But I think if he figures that he does set himself against the king, that he does elevate his own position, he's not going to be the king's dog's body, the king's lapdog. He's going to be a powerful figure in his own right and whilst he stops wearing his rich clothes to hang about and party in he has got his archbishop's robes and his fancy hat and his i should know what these things are called is a is the archbishop's hat called a mitre as well but you know he has the the curly stick and the funny hat and the robes and and all of that stuff so he's a pretty important figure and i just think he wanted to to try and elevate himself almost on a par with King Henry. And so the two of them have this terrible falling out. And any time Henry tries to impose anything onto the church, Beckett opposes it. He says, within the church and over the souls of the people of England, I am essentially king. You can be king of the treasury, of the army, of the lords, but I am king of souls. And, but this this dispute drags on until we get to the famous episode where I was always taught that he, whilst he's over in France campaigning, he hears that Beckett has done something else to undermine his authority and blurts out, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? It seems he didn't say that. But as all of this was was reported retrospectively, we don't really know. But essentially, he was probably drunk and he had an outburst. He said, who's going to do something about this? This lowly clerk who I've put into this position of power and now he tries to make me look stupid. And four of Henry's knights set off back to England. They cross the channel. They hurry to Canterbury Cathedral. They come in on... Beckett whilst he's at his prayers and it seems at first that they were simply trying to arrest him and take him away and uh, imprison him somewhere 
But he refuses to leave the cathedral. They say, get yourself ready because we're going to go away. But when we come back, I want you to be ready to leave with us. They go away. They come back later. He's still there praying at the altar. And is this a, a massive act of self-regard, of vanity? Is this a deliberate way to, to sort of cause his own martyrdom? Who knows? But essentially, one of the knights twats him round the head with his sword, slices off the top of his skull, his brains and his blood starts pouring out all over the floor. Another knight whacks at him. The sword rebounds and hits one of the monks or priests who are looking after Beckett. It's a chaotic and ugly bloodbath and Beckett is, is slaughtered. An extraordinary thing is, this happens in 1170. And whilst Canterbury Cathedral has been rebuilt and remodelled in parts over the years following fires and enlargements or whatever, parts of it still exist. And the, the, the step where Beckett was, was killed is still there and the, you can still see the bloodstains that have been religiously preserved. So Beckett's cut down, the knights run off, they realise oops, perhaps we've gone a little bit too far. Maybe this isn't what Henry had in mind. They rush off and hide up in the, the northwest. Tellingly, they are never punished for this. Henry doesn't have them arrested and executed because uh, maybe because it can be traced back and it looks like that's possibly what he told them to do. Also, probably in his heart of hearts, Henry was pretty glad that they'd done this because when friends fall out, it's far worse than a dispute between people who don't really know each other. You know, it's like the end of a marriage where you can be more beastly about your ex-partner than anyone else. It's like what happened in Saudi Arabia when Mohammed bin Salman fell out with his best friend Khashoggi. Uh, that was very much a who will rid me of this turbulent journalist moment. So Henry has rid himself of Beckett. And that might have been the end of Beckett's spotlight in history, except the story goes, and this is not in all retellings of the story and the histories, but but it's become the accepted version of the story. When Beckett's retainers strip his body to prepare him for burial, they discover under his archbishop's robes a hair shirt. This thing that heavy-duty Christians were prone to wear of woven goat's hair or horse hair, very, very scratchy and itchy and uncomfortable, and in Beckett's case, crawling with maggots and lice, and that he was so pious he wore this next to his body. And it's a weird thing, this sort of ultra-Christian desire for self-flagellation. I don't think there's anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus says, you know, if you really want to show how much you love and appreciate me and worship God, make your life miserable. Wear a hair shirt, flagellate yourself, smash your forehead with a rock. Do all these terrible... I, I don't think it says that anywhere. It basically says, be decent to each other and believe in me. But there grew up this idea that to be really pious, you, you had to not enjoy life at all. You had to make your life as miserable as possible. And you had to say, even though I might be a great man, I might be an archbishop, I am nowhere near as great as God. I am just a humble sinner. I am a, a, a damaged human being. And look, to show that, I will make my skin red raw by wearing this hair shirt. But essentially, in Beckett's case, it's like, oh, wow, this guy really is holy. And it's the first step on the path to him being sanctified. So Henry's in this position. He thinks, oh, no, I've killed or had killed this holy man. The people are going to not look well on this. They could well turn against me. But he, being a good politician, thinks he, could, he can actually turn it to his own advantage. So he makes a pilgrimage to the cathedral. He stops some way away and advances the last section, walking on his knees, stripped to his underwear, and goes and kneels and pays penance at the sight of Beckett's murder. And 
you know, he thinks actually if we do elevate Beckett to this great saintly position, and I am seen to be the advocate of that, that that might put me in a good light. Because also what's going on at this time is there, there are all these problems with the popes, of real popes, of anti-popes, of popes setting themselves up, set them against each other. And they're always vying to get power and support for themselves. And Henry sees that actually if he's got this powerful dead saint in England, that gives him a certain amount of authority of his own and it gives him a more bargaining power with the rest of the church. So it's a useful bit of propaganda to have Beckett as this fantastic holy figure. And the campaign to have him sanctified is successful and it becomes the main pilgrimage in England. It's a pilgrimage route from, from all, all around Christendom, um, famously immortalised in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales with this group of pilgrims on their way to Canterbury. Um, and it becomes this sort of central myth of England. And it makes England seem more important and the English church seem more important. And it makes Henry seem more important. So actually he turns that to his advantage. So we can see that Henry was a, a pretty good mover and a shaker. But like his predecessors, as I mentioned earlier, he ended up having problems with his own family. He had five sons, the eldest of whom was confusingly also called Henry, but he's generally known in the history books as Henry the Young King. So I will refer to him as Henry the Young King, and I will refer to Henry Plantagenet, his father, as Henry II, to avoid any confusion. And we saw in the last episode how King Stephen tried to get his son Eustace crowned king so he would have been a co-king during Stephen's lifetime, but the church refused it. But Henry thinks he will have a go and try and do the same thing. And this actually starts before Thomas Becket is killed. It's a period where he's away from England on some religious business abroad. And he has said he does not approve and won't accept Henry the Younger being crowned king whilst his father is still alive. But Henry II takes advantage of Becket being away and uses the Bishop of York to get his son crowned Henry the Young King. And he is very young. He's just a teenager at the time. He's 15. I mean, it, it's only really an honorary title. He doesn't have any actual power. That, that remains with his father. But it does mean that he's firmly there uh, in place if anything happens to Henry. And that actually was one of the the main things that really got Beckett angry with Henry in that he had pushed this through behind his back and he has made it clear that he disapproved of it. And this probably what led to their final dispute. Now, interestingly, Henry the young king had been married when he was younger, even younger, to the daughter of the French king. At the time, he was five and she was three. So we can see this is very much a political marriage that Henry forced it through in order to cement this relationship between the Plantagenets and the French royalty. He thought that this would keep the French king at arm's length. But then the French king was really angry that when Henry the young king was crowned, his French wife was not officially made queen at the same time. So whilst Henry I might have hoped this would keep relationships good between him and the French king, it, like all these things, it caused as many problems as it appeared to solve. So alongside Henry the young king, we have his brothers, Richard, Geoffrey and John. These are the surviving brothers. The original eldest brother had died earlier on. And as you would know from history, Richard goes on to become Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, and John goes on to become Wicked Prince John, and later King John. It seems that young John was Henry's favourite, and possibly his mother's favourite, as often the youngest child is. But at the time, John was known as John Lackland, because he didn't have any land, 
and he wasn't due to inherit any land as the, as the youngest son. So these princes are always in this slightly awkward position. But to try and help him out, Henry essentially invaded Ireland. And he said, come on, John, let's go over to Ireland and we'll take some land off the Irish and you can have that. And they were reasonably successful. Ireland was ruled by a lot of sort of minor kings, so there wasn't a huge unity in the land. And certainly at the time, John was able to take over these estates in Ireland. So Henry I, Henry Plantagenet, had had these children with Matilda starting when he was in his early 20s. So that when Henry II gets to his early 40s, Henry the Younger is in his early 20s. And he is ambitious. All of the sons are ambitious, but particularly Henry the Younger. He says to his father, says, look, you, you've, I'm officially king. I am your co-ruler of this land, but I have no power. I have no great castles of my own. I have no great land of my own, a, a big income. I, I want to be a proper king. I want you to accept me as a, as a dynamic force. And Henry thinks, oh God, it's happening all over again. You give these people a little bit of power and they want more and suddenly they become a threat. And so he, he keeps saying to Henry, no, you will inherit this. When I die, all this will be yours. But for now, just accept that you are going to be our future king. But things get worse and worse. Henry wants to rebel against his father. Richard wants to rebel. Even John. And somewhere in here, Geoffrey dies and he's taken out of the picture, trampled to death in a jousting tournament in Paris. Jousting was the sort of polo of its time, the chief pastime of the aristocracy. Henry, the young king, was a very famous jouster. He's a sort of playboy prince, famous in all the great jousting tournaments of Europe, travelling around with his mentor, William Marshall. And he's described as being tall, handsome, athletic and empty-headed. He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, although, you know, he's good in a fight. <laughs> but he is this sort of uh, sort of superstar figure at the time. He's a, he's a kind of David Beckham figure, I suppose. Much loved and able to draw on support. He draws on the support of his mother, because by this point, Eleanor and Henry are not as close as they used to be. Henry had a lot of mistresses, most famously Rosamond, Rose of the World, who he was very close to. She was in her 20s, very beautiful. And by this point, he seems to have had a lot more love for her than he did for Eleanor. Rosamond died in her late 20s and lots of stories grew up and popular ballads were written and, and sort of lurid tales of wicked Queen Eleanor having... Rosamond murdered, or in some of the stories, murdering her by her own hand with poison and knives and all sorts of things. So this sort of fairy tale type stories grew up around Rosamond, even though she was the mistress. But it was accepted and in, indeed expected of kings to have mistresses. But it meant that Eleanor wasn't as fond of him as she had been. And she actually sided with Henry, the young king, when he decided to rebel against his father. So in 1173, 20 years into Henry's reign, there is this thing known as the Great Revolt, where Eleanor and young Henry rise up against King Henry II, who defeats them. He defeats this army led by his wife and son, imprisons Eleanor. She spends the next 16 years in various prisons. She's let out for special occasions like Christmas. And they do still seem to have some kind of a relationship, John and Eleanor. Love hates, perhaps. So young Henry is given a slap on the wrist and things settle down. But in the meantime, King Henry's second son, Richard, is forming a relationship with King Philip of France. They're plotting behind Henry's back to get Richard into a position where he can control lots of these lands in France before Henry dies. Now, some people have claimed that Richard and Philip were perhaps lovers. 
but there doesn't seem to be any evidence of this, other than the fact that they once shared a bed together for diplomatic reasons. But whatever the case, they certainly became very closely allied. So 10 years after the Great Revolt, in 1183, there's a second revolt where the allied forces of Richard, Henry the Young King and King Philip of France take on King Henry II again. During these campaigns, Henry the Young King dies of dysentery, which is a typical soldier's death in these. It must have been incredibly unsanitary conditions in a military camp in those days. Dysentery was rife. It's essentially a catch-all term for, for the shits, um, any form of kind of internal infection. And many important people in English history have died of dysentery, including Henry V later on. But young King Henry dies, which puts Richard in line to the throne. Whilst this dispute is going on, Henry I is having to raise an army in Normandy again and fight against his own son and the King of France. And understandably, he develops an ulcer. It must have been pretty stressful, let's face it. All he wanted was to rule the country and just get on and sort things out. But he's got to deal with all these problems, including his own bloody children who can't wait for him to die. And eventually the ulcer bursts and Henry dies in 1189 at the age of, of 56, which is the end of it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, my guest on this episode, my proper historian who really knows about this stuff, is the wonderful Helen Castor, who I first became aware of when she published her book, She-Wolves, uh, which is about the women who ruled England before Elizabeth. Uh, so that's Empress Matilda, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Isabella of France and Margaret of Anjou. And that became something of a bestseller, didn't it, Helen? Turns out, yeah. Um, luckily for me, it was fantastic fun to write, but I wasn't quite sure whether people would take to a book that had so many episodes, if you like. But that turned out to be a strength, I think, to be able to link all these amazing women together. Yeah, and it, and it's interesting that for so long, the way we looked at the past and, and said, you know, what is history? It was very male dominated. But there's been a big move lately to re-examine the part that women played. It's not always easy because... They didn't wield either the pen or the sword. And so quite often you're having to put together women's stories from silences or from joining dots across gaps. But when you do start to do that, really interesting things start coming out. And Eleanor Aquitaine is a brilliant example of that, I think, her role in Henry II's reign. I was interesting. You, you called the book She-Wolves. You're, you're kind of... Um making it clear what your attitude is towards these women from the start. Well, also making it clear what the attitude of contemporaries was because She-Wolf was not a compliment. It was a recognition of power, but power that was deeply alarming. Uh, the idea that these women were sort of feral and wild mm. and to be feared and something slightly unnatural about them. Good women didn't get described as she-wolves. Mm. It was the ones you had to be scared of. That we, we had Kath uh, Hanley on the previous episode talking about Matilda and the bad press 
that she had because she had the temerity to sort of act like a man um and that she was she was doomed not to actually take the throne but kind of by proxy through her son and it's interesting that um that henry sort of married what seems to be quite a similar woman he did of course, one of her most attractive traits from his point of view was the fact that she was the heiress to the Duchy of Aquitaine. So she came with huge amounts of territory in southwestern France. But she herself was more than attractive. And yes, if you look at the, uh, at the two generations, Matilda was a formidable, really remarkable woman who married a man quite a bit younger than herself and they had three sons and the family didn't go well <laughs> um and then and then you look at the next generation and there are, there's one more son even in the mix but history does does play itself out again and again men marry their mother apparently <laughs> yeah because there was a similar age gap between henry and eleanor there was and she had i mean he was 19 when they married she was 28 She'd already been Queen of France for 15 years. And I don't think this gets enough press, if you like. I, I don't, can't think of anyone else in history who's been Queen of France for 15 years, gets a divorce and marries the man who's the 19-year-old who's about to become King of England. That's some story. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, how, how, how much that divorce... Was was that something that, that she really pushed for? I think it was. Uh, historians will argue till the cows come home about this. <laughs> but Eleanor had married Louis VII of France, or the man who was about to become Louis VII of France, when she was 13. And she'd never been impressed with him. She was supposed to have said later on that he was more monk than king. He absolutely adored her from all the evidence mm. we have. He was sort of puppyishly besotted with her. She really wasn't keen. Um, and for years, they had no children. Eventually, she had one daughter. They went off on crusade together. She went off mm -hmm. to Anatolia and then to Jerusalem with him. Was said to have had an affair with her uncle, who was then ruling Antioch, um, on her way. And on the way back said, basically, I don't want to come back with you. I don't want anything more to do with you. And the Pope had to kind of stick the couple back together as they were traveling back through Europe. And Eleanor buckled down again and had another daughter. But that daughter was not yet two, and she was only 28 at the point that the divorce happened. So the story is often, well, Louis got fed up. He hadn't had a son. He mm. needed a son. Clearly, that's why he's getting rid of Eleanor. But there's no sign that she was infertile. Um, and the big disadvantage for Louis, if he got rid of Eleanor, is he also got rid of Aquitaine, mm. this enormous inheritance. So my reading of this is that there's no reason. Louis loved her. Um, he needed a son for France and for Aquitaine. The person who needed to get out before she had a son was Eleanor, mm. because if she had a baby boy, that baby boy would be King of France and Duke of Aquitaine. She would have lost her inheritance. She would have lost her agency. So I reckon the way I can interpret this is if Eleanor refused to sleep with Louis anymore, Louis was never going to have a male heir. And so she was the one who had, I mean, I can't prove this, but there, <laughs> there is a logic to it, um, that if she said, right, either I'll stay being Queen of France, but you'll never have a male heir, or we get an annulment. She's got Louis over a barrel. And eight weeks and two days later, marries 19-year-old Henry, who's about to become <laughs> King of England. This has got Eleanor's fingerprints all over it. Yeah, it's a great deal for Henry, who gets all her land. But, I mean, was that all there was to it? Had they even met? He had turned up at the French court. She had. They had sight of each other. Right. So I think they had got the measure of each other. And, and of course, she's pregnant within months of them um, marrying. It's a boy. A year later, she has another boy. So at the point where she's queen, crowned mm. Queen of England at Henry's side, she's heavily pregnant with what turns out to be her second son. And she just keeps producing babies. She so. produces a lot of boys, yeah, which, yeah. which um, causes huge problems down the line. <laughs>
It's great when they're little, but <laughs> when when they're teens, the teen years were terrible for Henry and Eleanor. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, because because of course this is the problem that Henry was amassing an extraordinary empire, and he was holding it together by force of will, force of energy, force of ability. He was an extraordinarily able man, and he never stopped moving. And in theory, I mean, he kept saying, well, of course, I will parcel out this empire between my sons, my dynasty. Um, and his sons were listening to this and thinking, great, we're going to... Yeah, the kings always seem to be doing this. They're, they're saying, I'm going to give you all this land and power. And they're not really doing it because they suddenly think, oh, oh God, what if they then turn on me? Which is often what happened. They seem to be buggered whatever way they go. But but now one question I'm looking at through this series, it's a sort of slightly childish concept, but, you know, it's the idea of good king, bad king. Uh, you sound like you're quite impressed by Henry. Henry, I think, is was one of the most impressive kings of England ever, certainly of the Middle Ages. We have, well, a series of remarkable pen portraits of him. It's possible to see Henry in the round in a way that's that's not true for many medieval kings because the the chroniclers who knew him were so so impressed almost obsessed by him that they they wrote these detailed descriptions and he was a bundle of energy quite a stocky man might have run to fat if he wasn't always on the move and didn't eat very much drove his courtiers mad because he was always in the saddle legs bowed from the amount of time he spent in the saddle. Either he was fighting or he was hunting. Then he'd get home at the end of the day and still wouldn't sit down. And of course, his courtiers couldn't sit down unless he did. So um, <laughs> one of them described him as a human chariot dragging all after him. And this ferocious energy went with a ferocious intelligence. Another chronicler said, with the King of England, it is like school every day, and by school meaning university, um, that... He loved discussing intellectual problems and he was a soldier. You know, he had the whole package, really. And the result of that was that he ended up ruling, we might call it an empire, certainly a federation of territories stretching from the Scottish border to Ireland down to the Pyrenees. The central story of King Henry's reign, the part that most people will know, is the murder of the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, do you think Henry meant for him to be killed? No. Henry had a terrible, terrible temper. He could be, he, he could display unearthly calm in moments of extreme crisis. He was deeply unpredictable. But there are descriptions of him, for instance, one day when someone at his court made a, a favourable mention of the King of Scotland when he wasn't in the right mood and he ended up lying on the floor screaming and threshing about and chewing the straw out of his own mattress. Um, so temper was a thing with Henry. Mm. So I think Henry was beyond furious at Becket. But again, the terrible murder of your Archbishop of Canterbury in his own cathedral, breaking the sacred the sacredness of the space causing then two years of crisis. You end up having to be whipped publicly by the monks in order to <laughs> sort the whole thing out. I, I don't think Henry intended all no. of that, but we've all said things we didn't mean in a heated moment. <laughs> Luckily, anything I've said in a heated moment hasn't led to the Archbishop of Canterbury having his brain <laughs> smashed out. But, it was, you know, it, it could happen. Uh, yeah, exactly. Who knows? But it, I mean, it was a terrible, shocking murder that reverberated around Europe and reverberated down the centuries that Beckett became the English saint, um, revered widely. And it isn't until the 16th century when Henry VIII decided he wasn't that keen on uppity archbishops who told kings they weren't supposed to do what they wanted, um, and Henry absolutely obliterated every trace of Becket's cult. Uh, if you look at 16th century manuscripts, Henry VIII has insisted that the name has to be scrubbed out, uh -huh. the saint he took against the most. But because of 
the power that Beckett acquired after death. It's um, Star Wars, isn't it? If you strike me down, I will become <laughs> yes. more powerful than you could ever imagine. And that's what happened and, with Beckett. And, and Henry did eventually manage to capitalise on that. He did. Henry, again, a very, very able politician. Once he'd been through the process of penance, uh, established the shrine at Canterbury, uh, the useful thing was Beckett was now dead and uh, not there to argue with him anymore. And so he was able to get on with arguing with his sons and his wife in... Uh, um, yeah, which, which, which didn't go well at all. No. Um, what, what, why do you think um, Eleanor sided with the sons against the father? Yes, this is 1173, the um, revolt where it turns out first of all that Henry's oldest son is rebelling against him, then the two younger ones, Richard and Geoffrey, John is too little at this yes. stage to join in. They all go off to Paris um, to take shelter at the court of their mother's ex-husband, Louis, King of France, and then it turns out that Eleanor is about to follow them and she's been pulling the strings of this um, from the beginning. The story goes, the legend goes, that Henry had a mistress called Rosamond Clifford. Very, oh, yes. very beautiful mistress. And that Eleanor was so outraged by this that she flounced into rebellion. I don't buy it for a second. Eleanor knew that powerful men had mistresses. Yeah. Um, her grandfather was the first troubadour whose poetry we have attributed to a named source. She had grown up in the court of Aquitaine, which was famously romantic, not to say um, a little bit scandalous. Uh, if you were from Normandy or England, um, she knew what was what. She hadn't even seen Henry for most of the last three years at the at the point where this rebellion breaks out. But what she had been doing was ruling Aquitaine for him and on behalf of their son, Richard, the second son, who had been marked out as the future Duke of Aquitaine to inherit from Eleanor. Because the fact that Eleanor brought Aquitaine with her to the marriage didn't mean that Aquitaine was immediately incorporated and subsumed into England or Normandy. It was still an independent duchy. And so it was going to be given to Richard when his elder brother became King of England and Duke of Normandy, Count of Anjou, in the fullness of time. So Eleanor was very happy with this. Richard was her favourite son. She was bringing him up in Aquitaine, a native of her land. This was all great. But Henry was prepared to delegate just so far and no further. Mm. And by 1173, it was becoming clear that all the deal that Eleanor thought they'd made was getting worse all the time. I'm back to Star Wars. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it was not, Henry didn't see it as irreversible or as clear cut as Eleanor did. And he was beginning to infringe on um the rights of the duchy and also had never really given the money and men she needed. Um, you know, he'd always kept the purse strings and the military mm. command in his hand. And Eleanor was fed up, as fed up as her sons and much more formidable than them because they were still teenagers at this mm. point. Um, but she was the one who got captured. The boys had all made it to Paris safely. Uh, she was on her way. The chroniclers tell us dressed as a man, which may be literally true because it makes sense if you're trying to mm. make your way across country uh, without being um, discovered. It may have been figuratively, metaphorically true because, of course, she was, by contemporary standards, acting unnaturally in yes. rebelling against her husband. And then she it stays in prison for the rest of Henry's life? That's right. Henry was... Endlessly forgiving of his sons, partly because he needed to be, because they were his heirs. He needed to find an accommodation with them. Um, partly because he, a, a, a contemporary chronicler tells us, loved, loved them with an inordinate love. This was a very emotional and tempestuous family. In fact, of all of them, I suspect Eleanor was the least emotionally tempestuous and Henry and the boys were all over the place. And partly, of course, because sons rebelling against their fathers was culturally understood. Hmm. Any number of biblical stories, Greek myths, etc., etc. This is what boys did. You just had to 
get them back in line and say boys will be boys and sort them out. And that's what Henry did with the boys. Eleanor, a wife rebelling against her husband, um, a contemporary um, cleric, wrote to her and said she risked a general ruin. The whole order of the world might crumble if she did not bow down, mm. seek her husband's forgiveness. And Henry wasn't messing about. He locked her up in England in luxurious circumstances. She wasn't in a prison cell, but for the next 15 years, we don't really hear But she was, she was allowed out on special occasions, like Christmas. Special occasions when he needed her. Right. And usually it was when the boys had been causing trouble again and something to do with Aquitaine had come up and he needed to wheel her out so that if, for instance, Richard was not prepared to kneel to him for Aquitaine because Richard was saying, well, Aquitaine's mine. I've been looking after it for the last however long. Okay, kneel to your mother. And he had to do that because it was her inheritance, right. but also it was an easier compromise than kneeling to his dad at that particular point. So Eleanor would be wheeled out in those circumstances, barely allowed to speak. Hmm. Really, for a woman who'd had so much agency in her life right up to that point, and in 1173, 74, when the rebellion is happening, um, at that point, she is just turning 50. So she's had half a century of having more agency, more power than almost any woman you can think of in the Middle Ages, and suddenly silence, confinement. I mean, is there any evidence for what she was thinking and feeling? Did she write None. letters? None. Nothing. Nothing survives. Nothing oh. survives. We have no personal letters written by Eleanor at any point in her life. We're always having to put our analysis, our interpretation together from what she did. And mm. for those 15 years, she was allowed to do nothing. So what did she do when she eventually got out? I think one of the most remarkable things about Eleanor's imprisonment, 15 years, as I say, in total historical silence, is that she emerges at the end of it unchanged, ready to go. The first thing her son Richard did when he came to the throne in the middle of yet another fight with his father, mm -hmm. his older brother already having died. So Henry, the young king, never actually gets to be king yes. in his own right. It's Richard, who we know as the Lionheart, who's next in line. In the middle of a fight with his father, he comes to where his father's died at Fontevraud. He, he looks at his father's dead body, turns on his heel, walks away, and the first order he gives is that his mother should be freed from prison huh. in England. And Eleanor emerges as though those 15 years haven't happened. She's in her mid-60s, and the energy and the ability and oh, the, all the capabilities that she shows from that point on till she dies at 80 is just extraordinary. Yeah. So she goes right the way through Richard's reign and halfway through John's. Yes, and John owed her an enormous amount. Was John the baby of the family? The runt of the litter, some <laughs> might say. Um, his own worst enemy a lot of the time and the number of scrapes that Eleanor got him out of one way or another. Well, thank you so much to my special guest on this episode, the brilliant Helen Castor, author of many history books, including the great She-Wolves, the women who ruled England before Elizabeth. And Helen, I hope you'll come back to talk about some other monarchs later in the series. And I hope you, my listeners, will come back for the next episode when we get to the controversial Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, Richard the Crusader. Was he a great hero or a colonialist monster? Helping me make up my mind will be Dan Jones. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.